0: Well, this morning we come back to some more answers to your questions. And, uh, like always, it's the frustrating part is I want to, I want to preach a sermon on every question that's answered or asked. And, uh, you know, and some questions are so good, I thought this would make a whole good series. And, uh, but of course, if I go slow, then I can answer thoroughly, but then I don't get very many questions answered. And if I go fast, and then sometimes they don't explain it in the detail that those who ask the question will wish I would. So I'm trying to try and get as many as I can in, and we'll be able to uh, conquer six more questions this morning. Again, if you have asked questions, you might want to check in the foyer because there is a sheet out there that lists some of the questions that were asked and where to go to find the answers because I've already a- answered them, and you can get those that information from the office okay here's the first question what are the crowns being referred to in the bible that believers receive well first the bible speaks of literal crowns worn by priests and kings and queens uh, in the new testament there is the mention of diadems which is probably more of what we think of when we think of you know some big gaudy gold thing studded with jewels that somebody puts on their head Secondly, the scriptures use the word crown figuratively as in Proverbs twelve four, which speaks of the excellent wife being the crown of her husband. Uh, uh, Proverbs also mentions gray hair as the crown of old men or children as the crown of grandparents. And of course, these texts use the word crown figuratively to speak of honor. A crown is a symbol of honor. It's helpful to understand that in the New Testament, when the word crown appears, the people in the New Testament usually didn't think of the big gold gaudy thing, but a just a perishable wreath of leaves, you know, a couple branches twisted together to make a little leaf halo type thing. Uh, Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 9:25, where he says, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And he's talking about the the Olympian games. When you won, you didn't get a gold medallion. You got a, you know, a chunk of leaves on your head. Um, <laughs> but that symbolizes the honor you were to receive because you won the race or competed in the race or won. And so in that way, crowns all are symbols of honor. And uh, when you come to the New Testament, you start surveying the different texts, such as the one I just read in First Corinthians nine twenty five, where Paul speaks of obtaining an imperishable crown. The references to salvation—that is, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you you receive honor from God, the honor of eternal life through faith in Christ the same thing is true as far as a figurative sense paul uses this and in First Thessalonians two nineteen and Philippians four one, when he speaks of uh, those churches respectively as his crown of exaltation, as his crown of glory, but these are not crowns given to believers, which is what the Christian is, the, uh, um, which was the question. But the still they're used figuratively. This is the honor because the Philippians and the Thessalonians were so faithful in their obedience to God and their diligence to grow in the Lord. Paul said. You guys are my crown, figuratively speaking. That is, you honor me with your faithfulness to the Lord. But when we get to texts like 2 Timothy 4, 8, Paul speaks of receiving a crown of righteousness, or James one twelve, or Revelation two twenty ten, where he speaks of the crown of life, or... First Peter 5, 4, speaking of the unfading crown of glory or in Revelation three eleven, Jesus exhorts the believers in the church of Philadelphia to not lose their crown, which he describes in the near context, the preceding context as keeping his word and not denying his name. And in all these texts, crown is not speaking of a literal crown, not even of a literal wreath of leaves. But of the honor that believers have because of their faith in Jesus Christ, they will be given the honor, quote, the crown of eternal life or the crown of righteousness. And that when they get to heaven, they will be honored with perfect righteousness. And that will be so to speak as a crown to them. The one possible exception text is in Revelation four, four through 10, where it talks about the 24 elders who laid down their crowns, their golden crowns at Christ's feet. And the question is, while those literal crown crowns, well, the first question is who are the elders? And uh, there is some debate about that. Some think they are angels. Uh, Others think they are a certain group of believers. Others think they are representative of believers. And so if If they represent believers and, you know, the question is, then why does it say there's 24? I mean, it's, it's hard to figure out and I don't want to go into that, but let's just say that they are believers or they do represent believers. Um, These may be literal crowns. Then again, gold is something valuable. A crown represents honor. The point of the passage is not, are the crowns literal golden crowns um, that they grab off the top of their head and hand to Christ or lay at his feet. The point is, is that they give the honor that those crowns represent to Christ as the great hymn would say, all glory, lot and honor to thee, the redeemer king. And that is pretty much taken from that text where Christ is honored, um, is to be honored with all the honor that So to sum up, the Bible promises crowns to believers. It's figurative, usually uh, an expression of the honor we receive from God through faith in Christ, either in righteousness or eternal life or whatever. Revelation 4 may be the exception if the elders represent believers and the crowns are actually literal crowns. Secondly, what does preterist mean? Hmm. Okay, now this is going to, we are going to lapse into some large terminology at this point. Usually I try and stay away from really big words like this, but we're jumping into big word Um Preteris comes from a word which, uh, which is preterite, which describes the past perfect tense. And it is a term that is used to describe those whose theological system teaches that either all or most of prophecy has already been fulfilled. There are two major preterist camps. There are the partial preterists and the full preterists. The full preterists teach that all the prophecies in the Bible were fulfilled by 70 A.D., every single one of them. The second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the tribulation, all of it has already been fulfilled. And this is not a very popular view. And then there is partial preterism, which is a little bit more popular. Partial preterism is more popular and usually comes in the package of postmillennialism. Postmillennialism. And uh, I'm sorry to be in distinction from premillennialism or amillennialism. Um, postmillennialism uh, means after the thousand years. That is post, after millennium, which means thousand, after the thousand years. The system teaches that Christ comes back after a spiritual reign, his spiritual reign on earth. The post millennial system teaches that Christ began his spiritual kingdom in AD 70 after the tribulation, which happened and Before 70 AD and culminated at 70 AD, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, they believe Satan is presently bound by the preaching of the gospel and that believers will eventually turn the world around for Christ and bring about a utopian state. The believer's victory on earth is understood as Christ's spiritual reign. So as believers obey God on earth, Christ is ruling and reigning through the saints on earth. The thousand year reign of Christ is not a literal thousand years nor a literal earthly reign, but an undefined period of time when the church is the major influence on earth. After the church's victory, Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. The rapture will occur. The internal state will ensue. Major distinctives of postmillennialism, uh, the preterist view are that one, the reign of Christ occurs before His physical return. Premillennialism, what we teach, what the scriptures teach, is that Christ comes back and then sets up a kingdom on earth. Secondly, postmillennialism rejects the imminence of Christ's return. Christ cannot come back at any time. Third, they deny the literal fulfillment of the majority of prophecy and they spiritualize it you know everybody agrees that there are some figurative and metaphorical things in the prophecy sections of the bible but if something is metaphor it has to be metaphor of something else so if you say if jesus says i am the door okay it's a metaphor he's not a literal slab of wood But that means something. Saying something is metaphor never gives us an excuse to just vaporize the text and not deal with it. If it's metaphor, it's metaphor of something. But they, in many texts, just blow off much of the prophecy and, well, that's spiritual. The question is, of what? And then they get very vague and very broad and general fourth the belief that the bulk of revelation and other second coming prophecies in the new testament have been fulfilled are a distinguishing characteristic five the evolutionary perspective which believes that over time things will get better and better as believers seek to take the world over for christ six that christ is now reigning on earth through the church and satan is bound by the preaching of the gospel not confined to a place in other words they say well it says he will deceive the nations no Longer, And as soon as the gospel started being preached, then he was no longer able to deceive whole nations. Of course, that's not what it's talking about. And of course, there's a huge problem because then right after that, it says he's released again. So what do you do with that? What does that mean? The gospel disappears? Seven, Jesus doesn't come back before his thousand years, the thousand year reign and set up his kingdom. He comes after uh, believers bring about this utopian state on earth. Eight, the phrase a thousand years or the thousand years in Revelation 20, uh, which appears six times, doesn't mean a thousand years. It just is an undefined period of a long time where believers eventually take over the earth. So the, the preterist view is that Christians get serious about their walks with the Lord. They begin to infiltrate society. They begin to infiltrate government. They infiltrate all realms of the media, of uh, just society and whole. By, through evangelistic efforts, more and more people come to Christ. More and more control is gained. And then you take over the earth until it is a Christian world. You bring about this utopia. And once it's brought about, then Christ can come back to receive the kingdom that, quote, he has established through his reign through the lives of believers. Another couple words, which I'll throw out just to make your eyes go sideways, are theonomy or theonomic reconstructionism. Theos is the word for God. Namas is the word for law. So law of God or law of God reconstruction. So some preterists are theonomic reconstructionists and they believe that the law of Moses is to be instituted in society. Not the sacrificial system, but the civil laws, the punishments uh, of all, you know, the death sentences, all that stuff, incorrigible children taken outside the city stone. In um, here, you'd have a hard time because it's city all the way from here to, you know, the other side of San Francisco. But yeah, you know, you take them somewhere and you stone them. But the whole point is, is that Christians through their efforts slowly take over And then once they take over the world, they begin to reinstitute the law of Moses, which is the perfect law. And then Christ comes back to receive the kingdom. Some of the major uh, popular preterists today are Hank Hanegraaff and R.C. Sproul. This view is false for several huge reasons. One, they do not interpret scriptures in a consistent manner. Many prophecies, which make perfect sense if taken literally, are spiritualized and the literal meaning is ignored altogether. Secondly, the Bible teaches that things will get worse, not better, before Jesus returns. Paul says things will proceed from bad to worse, men both deceiving and being deceived. In Luke 17:22 through 37, Jesus says that the last days immediately preceding the second Second coming will be just as the days of Noah, when the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of man's heart was only evil continuously and will be just the same way as it was in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is not getting better and better. Third, the book of Revelation was written around 95 AD, which means... The prophecies in the book of Revelation could not have been fulfilled before 70 AD or culminating in 70 AD because the book wasn't written for another 25 years. For Jesus speaking of what happens after the tribulation says this in Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Now they said the tribulation happened before 70 AD culminating in 70 AD. See if you think this happened. And then the Son of Man, immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Has that happened? I don't think so. All eyes did not see him. The angels did not gather the elect. The tribulation has not happened. The second coming has not happened, which means the predator's view is false. If you want to call the office, you can get the basic Bible doctrine study on end times. It kind of surveys the views and gives you a little chart. So you can kind of sort all that out if you want to do that. Third, are you in favor of the death penalty? And I told the first service, I just recently killed a lot of ants and spiders around my house. So, yes, Um, if someone commits a crime such as murder or kidnapping as a sentence to die and they come to Christ and are born again, do you think they should get off because they are a new person in Christ? So, two questions. The first, I'm going to modify because this is supposed to be Bible questions, not Jack Hughes' opinions. And so we will modify the first question a bit and ask, is God in favor of the death penalty? So, the answer of that question is, of course. He's in favor of the death penalty. In fact, when Christ comes back, he will execute all unbelievers. He will exercise the right of capital punishment on all unbelievers on the earth simultaneously at one time. It is clear also in the Old Testament law of Moses that God required the death penalty for various crimes like murder, witchcraft, adultery, disobedient children, whatever. So God's view of the matter is clear. He is for the death penalty. The question is whether or not it is still biblical for governments today to exercise the death penalty or if that practice is a thing of the past or only something Jesus has a right to do in the future. Some argue that we are no longer under the law of Moses, so it's wrong to go to the Old Testament and try and prove that death penalty is okay since we're no longer under that law system. And that argument has some validity as it is true we are no longer under the law of Moses. However, the law of Moses does reveal to us the moral standard of God. And even though we may not be under the direct applications of the law of Moses, we're still to learn and obey the principles of the law of Moses. For instance, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and it is all profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the question is, what does all of, what do all those texts which speak of the death penalty in the law of Moses teach us? Also, you could go to Romans fifteen four, which says uh, the things that were written in earlier time were written for our instruction, so we would grow in righteousness. Or you could go to First Corinthians ten verses six and eleven, which talks about all the examples, which include the death penalty in the Old Testament, were instituted for our instruction, so we can grow in righteousness so the the question we have to ask is what do all these texts in the old testament you know even though we are not under the law of moses what do all do they all teach us about righteousness and what is right and what is wrong some though would argue well you know jack still even though you might go to those texts and extract a timeless principle that to god some some Crimes were so heinous that they deserve the death penalty. Does that mean we're going to be, you know, stoning incorrigible children now? And if not, why not? And why pick out murder as a crime today that should receive capital punishment and not the other things? Well, the reason that murder is singled out is because... Capital punishment for murder was instituted before the law of Moses. That's why. So capital punishment was instituted before the law of Moses. In the law of Moses. The question is, is it still in effect now? Or is it something that governments have the right to do? Well, Genesis nine six. God says to Moses, whoever shed man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Here, God tells Noah, if somebody kills somebody else, then they need to die. And the reason given is not because you're under a certain law system. The reason is, that is given is men are created in the image of God. And because of that, they have this intrinsic worth. And the only punishment due a crime of murder is to take the life of the one who took the life of somebody else. And again, don't confuse murder with killing. They are not the same thing. War is not murder. Accidents are not murder. Manslaughter is not murder. Murder is something totally different. The key text in the New Testament that argues for capital punishment is Romans 13.4. And in the context... Paul is talking about our need to submit to the governing authorities uh, because they are established by God. And this is what Paul says in Romans thirteen four. for it, that is the government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. The question is, what does the phrase bear the sword mean? And some people have argued, no, bear the sword is just a symbol of authority. It's, it's not, it doesn't mean governments can exercise capital punishment. Well, you have to admit that swords were military instruments of death. When a Roman soldier carried a sword, he didn't just carry it for decoration and ornament, intimidation factor. He carried it because he used that in battle to kill the enemy. And in the context, Paul is talking about the punishment for doing evil. And he gives the exhortation to be afraid. And he says that the government is an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. And he's not just saying, well, be scared because somebody might give you a little poke with the sword or give you a little superficial laceration. He's talking about death. If you go back and you f- read the Old Testament about avengers, avengers had right to kill somebody. Swords are to be feared because they are instruments of death. And some still argue, yeah, but the Romans didn't use the f- sword to execute people, criminals, they used crucifixion. Well, it's true they used Christi- crucifixion, but it's not true that they only used crucifixion because Acts 12:2 says they put to death James with the sword. Others argue, no, no, no. In John 8, when Jesus had that woman caught in adultery, brought to him, he didn't execute the death sentence, even though the Old Testament said that that you were to execute stone people who committed adultery. Jesus did not do it, and so he overturned the law of capital punishment. But that is not what happened in that text. If you look at that text a little closer... And you compare all the text of what was to happen. What was to happen is the husband was to bring his wife who was caught in adultery by him to the judge. And that judge then was to look at the case and the man who committed adultery with her was to be brought. But in the case in John 8, they bring, they entrap the woman. They bring her to Jesus. Where's the husband? Not there. Where's the guy? Who committed adultery with her? Not there. And so Jesus dismissed the case because those who were accusing the woman were just as guilty as the woman since they broke the law in bringing her to him in the improper way. Seeking to, with evil motives, try to get Jesus to do something that would get him in trouble with the Romans. Jesus wasn't overriding the death penalty, he was obeying the law perfectly and that's why he dismissed her. Others argue that in the New Testament, believers are called to forgive or love our enemies or extend mercy or not seek revenge and on and on and therefore capital punishment could not be something we need to be doing today. But this is to really have a flawed understanding of the issue. We're not talking about believers and believers' responsibility to other people. We're talking about governments and their right to execute criminals. And those two are a totally different issue. But regardless of where you stand in the issue, you, it has to be admitted. These four things have to be admitted, which argue very seriously for capital punishment. One, God is for capital punishment, no doubt. Two, Jesus is coming back to exercise capital punishment, no doubt. Three, capital punishment existed way before the law of Moses and in the law of Moses and is based on the intrinsic value of men, which still exists, were still created in the image of God. And four, the sword in Romans thirteen four is an instrument of death and people were executed by the sword by Rome in New Testament times. If you want to do some more study in this issue, I would recommend that you get John Feinberg's book, Ethics for a Brave New World. It is an excellent book, Ethics for a Brave New World by John Feinberg, and he addresses all kinds of things, abortion and just all these ethical issues we face today. And he has an especially thorough and very excellent argue with all the pros and cons of all the different views and all the reasonings and it's great. And then Walt Kaiser's book, Old Testament Ethics, um, both of these books have a lot of uh, good information on capital punishment and other ethical issues. The last part of the question is, if someone commits a crime, such as murder or kidnapping, is sentenced to die, and they come to Christ and are born again, do you think they should get off because they are a new person in Christ? No. Um, what what you need to realize is when you commit sin and your sin is forgiven in Christ, you escape the eternal consequences of that sin. You don't escape the earthly consequences. You shoot somebody, it doesn't matter whether you're forgiven or not. You are forgiven if you're a Christian. You still go to jail. You need to go to jail. You don't just get to say well you know I escape all consequences of my sin because now I'm forgiven in Christ. Uh, A great example of this is David who after committing um, you know his adultery and treachery and murder and all that stuff uh, was confronted by Nathan, confessed his sins. Nathan said you're forgiven. This is in 2 Samuel 12 if you want to read up on it. And then God said okay I forgive you. And Nathan goes okay the Lord forgives you. However the sword will never depart from your house. Evil is always going to be in your house. Not only that, but somebody's going to lie with your wives in broad daylight. Not only that, the child that has been conceived between this union is going to die. And not only that, and he, he just keeps going. So he suffered the earthly consequences of his sin. He didn't get to escape all that just because he was forgiven. So forgiveness doesn't mean no earthly consequences. Four, when the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would, or then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. That's a quote from Genesis. Did God create others outside of Eden? Were they created for destruction? Romans nine twenty through 21. Or was everyone a descendant of Adam? Now, there's two questions that are kind of implied here, um, in this other question, and what is what is the mark God put on Cain, and where did Cain get his wife? Okay, so we'll just say them outright uh, because if I don't, then people come up and they'll ask me. So we're going to answer these. What was the mark on Cain? Bible doesn't say. There we go. <laughs> I like questions like that. <laughs> it's easy. The Bible doesn't tell us what the mark or sign was, but it tells us what it was for. And uh, it tells us that after Cain killed Abel, that Abel was, or Cain was sent to be a wanderer. That is, the 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 earth would no longer produce for him crops, which of course was his profession. He was a good farmer. And God says, not anymore, you're not. It, it's not going to produce for you. And this is the curse, the consequence of your sin. So God mercifully, though, appointed a sign or a mark for Cain which would serve two purposes. One, first to let men know that they should that he should not be killed. And secondly, to mark him as the man who killed his brother is kind of a symbol of his shame. You have to remember that at that time, you know, everybody was pretty close. The family was pretty tight. And people would know that, you know, here's Cain and he killed Abel. And so let's kill him. And so God Graciously appointed this sign so they would not do that, but it also served as a sign. This is the guy who killed his brother. Now, the second question did God create others outside of Eden? Could also be rephrased where did Cain get his wife? Uh, Because the question is well, he left, he started wandering, and you know, it says he got married. I, I mean, was there another human race that God created, or how did he get that wife? And people often come to the conclusion that God had created other people because of this very issue. What happened? Because what they're thinking in their mind is, well, you have Adam, you have Abel and Cain. He went and got his wife. How did that happen? Um, And this is the classic question that was raised at the Scopes trial, which was, you know, supposedly prove Christianity wrong and evolution right. Um, And at the Scopes trial, William Jennings Bryant, who was the Quote, the defender of Christianity did not know the answer to this very simple question where Cain got his wife. He was very eloquent, but he was not very well equipped in the scriptures. And it was a travesty that that man was in the courtroom defending the faith when he didn't know the word very well. Every Christian should know the answer to this simple question, where did Cain get his wife? And it, it keeps popping up. In, in Carl Sagan's book that was made into a movie, Cosmos, it comes up again. Like, well, Christ, all of Christianity in the Bible must be wrong because where did Cain get his wife? You know, as if all scholars don't know the answer to that question or the average Christian in the Bible-believing church. Cain married one of his sisters. Okay, answer done. Um, at that time, it was necessary and it was permissible. You need to realize this: that right after cre- when men were created, men were created perfect, and so the gene pool was very strong and healthy at that time. So, if people intermarried, it wouldn't create hemophiliacs and all the diseases that happen if you intermarry today with close blood relatives, like the kings of the past, where you know everybody married relatives just to you know keep the the loot in the family, and uh, and made very weak and anemic kings and queens. Also keep in mind that Genesis gives a very truncated and brief account of Adam and Eve and their children. It only mentions a couple of them. I mean, we hardly even know. uh, We only know a few of them. But what we do know is they had lots of children. We know that Eve was able to Produce children for a long time, at least 130 years, because Eve was 130 years old when she gave birth to Seth. And you need to realize that she didn't have to grow up and then start having children. She was able to have children from the moment she was created, because she was created full grown. So who knows how long God enabled her to have children. The main command to be fruitful and multiply was what He you know, told him to do and gave her the ability to do. But even if Eve, you know, Seth was her last child, let's say, how many children could Eve have over a 130-year period? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Think about it, her having twins at times, maybe triplets at times, and having children for 130 years. Think about that her children that she had at the beginning could start producing children in their teens. So even if you said they waited until they, they were 20 to start having children. Think about this. You would be able to have over 8 generations of children. Just from Adam and Eve. Not including the generations from the children in their generations that they could have after that. So if you figure it out you could have a lot of people. Where did Cain get his wife? He married one of them. There you go. Okay, here's another one. Were men created for destruction? Romans 9, 20 through 21. No. It would be better to ask this question. Is destruction created for men who sin and will not repent? The answer to that question is yes. Romans 9, 20 through 21. The context is God's sovereign choice of of people, you know, Esau, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion, you know, I have raised a Pharaoh to demonstrate my power, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but upon God who has mercy, some of you will say, well then, how does he find fault for who resists his will? 920 on the contrary who are you o man who answers back to god the thing molded will not say to the molder why did you make me like this will it or does the potter have the right over the clay to make one this make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for common use the implied answer is what of course you know you're making little pinch pots and you don't like one you can just squish it okay i Okay, you're the potter. God can do anything he wants, is Paul's point, and that is no doubt. But what this text does not mean is that God makes people sin. The text is not saying God makes people sin. And what must be understood is that God knows everything, and knows everything before it happens, and has declared or decreed the end from the beginning. Before creation happened, he had determined the end from the beginning. Everything falls under God's all encompassing plan or decree. And since God is the creator and sustainer of all that exists, he is the cause of all that exists and everything that exists exists because of God. That is clear, too. And everything is within God's overarching plan. He sets up certain laws within his plan, like the laws of physics, which govern, you know, the universe of uh, gravity. And he also sets up moral laws and consequences. And one of the moral laws and consequences that he has set up is if you do not repent and believe, you will perish in hell. But what God does not do is cause people to sin. Men do that on their own initiative. People go to hell because of their sin. Not because God created men to sin so they would go to hell. God created men and angels without sin but gave them the ability to sin. Some angels rebelled and that is where Satan and his demons come from. And Adam and Eve rebelled and that is where the sinful human race comes from. But God did not make Adam and Eve sin. He made them holy with the ability to sin, told them not to sin, threatened them with death if they would sin, sustained them while they sinned and they sinned. But he didn't cause them to sin. God has appointed eternal destruction for unrepentant sinners. And if you survey the scriptures, it is clearly evident that men do not go to hell because God created them to go to hell. They go to hell because they sin, because they do not believe, because they will not receive the love of the truth is to be saved, so that, because they will not repent and on and on. But never does the scripture say, oh, you go to hell, you will go to hell because God did not choose you or God... Um, um, Created you for destruction. Having said this, God knows though beforehand whom he will save. And he saves all he desires to save and he loses none. Everyone else, God knows, will not be saved. And he did create them and he knows they're going to sin. And he knows they are going to be destroyed in hell. So in that way, yes, he creates men knowing they are destined for hell and that they will never repent. But this is one of the more complex theological issues in the Bible. And I would encourage you to listen to four sermons that were preached a while back from Psalm 145 on the sovereignty of God. You can get the tapes or CDs or listen to them on the web. Psalm 145, Attributes of God series, the four sermons on sovereignty, address this issue in more detail. Also, I would encourage you to get the basic Bible doctrine series, Lessons and Tapes on Man, Sin and Salvation, where we go into this in some detail. Moving on, is everyone a descendant of Adam? Yes. This means we are all blood relatives. You know, I'm talking about Cain and him marrying his sister, and some people are out there going, (laughs) Well, if you're married, you're married to a blood relative unless you married somebody who crawled out of the primordial slime. Of course, evolution denies this and says that men, by a random chance, evolved out of primordial slime and chemical soup, became monkeys and apes and then humans. But I want you to know, evolution can only be believed by blind faith. The sci- clear, definitive, irrefutable scientific evidence is that evolution is an impossibility. And as the years go on, it becomes more sure that evolution could never happen. It cannot happen. Not because the Bible talks about creation, but because the scientific evidence proves otherwise. Proves otherwise. The reason evolution is still being taught is that men hate God and love their sin. And they don't want God, and they don't want God telling them what to do, and they don't want to think about judgment coming, so they believe a lie in order to have their sin. But realize that if you do say men evolve from primordial slime, you lay the foundation for racism. You realize that? Because listen, you have a different colored skin than me, and that means you evolved out of different slime than I did. From different monkeys and a different random chance of something. And since my skin is lighter, I'm going to argue that I'm more advanced. You're still an animal, so I have the right to kill you. This was Hitler's reasoning, who believed the Germans were the superior race, for instance. But if you believe the truth that all humans are descendants of Adam and Eve and all of us are blood relatives, like Cain, we all marry relatives. This depends how close and distance they are. This is the death knell to racism because we are all one family, all blood relatives, all of the same race because there is really only one race, the race of descendants from Adam and Eve. And I have news for you, Adam and Eve are almost certainly dark skinned. And for more information on this, I would encourage you to go to AnswersInGenesis.org. AnswersInGenesis.org and put in the search engine, you know, Cain and his wife or, you know, skin colors or races or whatever. And they have lots of good articles, both simple and complex, on the issue. And since you didn't ask about the different races, I'm not answering it. Okay, five. What are the promises to Abraham? What are the promises? Turn to Genesis 12. Genesis chapter 12, which is the first section of promises where God promises Abraham certain things. And at that time, his name was Abram. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is what we read. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house into the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here we have these Basic things. There's a land promise, a promise his descendants would become great, a promise that Abraham through his descendants would be a blessing, that God would bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who curse him, and that all the families of the earth would be blessed in him. Now, I want you to know the the Abrahamic covenant appears over and over and again throughout the scriptures. We're just going to look at two texts. Turn over to Revelation, or Genesis 17, at Revelation, the other end. Um, Genesis 17. and here it is restated again and look at verse 2 god says to abraham i will establish my covenant between me and you and i will multiply you exceedingly there's there's the promise there We're going on to verse 4 as for me behold my covenant is with you that i will that and you will be a father of a multitude of nations no longer shall your name be called abram But your name shall be called Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give you, give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, when you look at the New Testament, you see the same things here. You know, blessing, land, descendants, all of that. When you look at the New Testament, the New Testament, when it mentions the Abrahamic promises in texts like Romans 4, 13 through 16, Galatians 3, 14, 16, 18, 29, Hebrews 6, 13, 7, 6, and 11, 17. And Psalm always refers to that phrase at the very end that we read in, in twelve 3, that in you... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And what is clear is, is when God promised Abraham that, that was the promise of the Messiah. That from his descendants would come a Messiah, a Savior, that would save and bless some from all the nations of the earth. That is how... The New Testament mostly refers to it in reference to Christ. However, the New Testament also speaks, like in the end of Galatians, that we who believe in Christ, we become spiritual descendants of Abraham because we place our faith in Christ and Christ is in us and we are in him and we are adopted into the family of God. As Romans 11 says, we are like the olive, uh, the wild olive branch grafted into the natural tree. We participate in The promises to Abraham, which means we will get the land blessing also and rule and reign with Christ and enjoy that also. We get the new covenant. We get all the same promises blessed uh, or promised to the Jews. We inherit those blessings through our faith in Christ, who is a son of Abraham. And we are in Christ. So we get Abraham's Blessings. So that's how all that works. Basically, the promises can be summed up in the promise of the land of Israel to Abraham's descendants, both spiritual and physical. Secondly, the promise of the coming of the Messiah. And third, the blessings which come to those who place their faith in the descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Six, what happens to us when we die? And a second similar question, how does the resurrection fit into our lives? Well, when a believer dies, they go to hell or Hades, um, a place of torment. Uh, in Luke sixteen, nineteen through thirty-one, it talks about the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man describes himself in verse twenty-four as in being an agonizing flame. All unbelievers who have died are right now in the agonizing flames of Hades or hell. They are being consciously tormented later after the thousand year reign of Christ. That is the tribulation happens. Jesus comes back. He sets up his earthly kingdom. He reigns for a thousand years at the end of the thousand years. He lets Satan go. Satan has one last rebellion. He wipes Satan out. He kills all the unbelievers. He resurrects then all the unbelievers from the dead and they all stand before Christ and, in resurrected bodies fit for eternal destruction they're all judged by their works and they're all cast into the lake of fire that is described in revelation 20 11 through 15 believers however have a different fate jesus said in john eleven twenty four and 25 that believers live even if they die Job in Job 19:26 and 27 says, even after my skin is destroyed yet from my flesh, I shall see God whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. Paul, speaking about the mortality of our body, said this in Second Corinthians 5, 6-9, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be, pr- be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. In other words, when we die, we're going to be at home with the Lord, with Christ. Philippians 1.23, Paul speaks of longing to die and be with Christ. Texts like these tell us that when a Christian dies, they go to be with Christ. But they don't have their glorified bodies yet. They're spirit beings. And don't think of the Hollywood definition. Um, think of angels. Angels are spirit beings, right? And when they appeared in the Old Testament, they looked like men. Um, they were even able to eat. You know, they were spirit beings. But... When the resurrection happens and we receive our glorified bodies, we're not only spirit beings, but we now receive a glorified body like Jesus had after his resurrection. So we're everything the angels are and something else better. Paul speaking about the mortality of our body Um in, or, or the resurrection of the body in first corinthians fifteen fifty one and fifty two says this: behold, I tell you a mystery: we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the, the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Believers will be resurrected, um, the live ones will be just Change. you will receive your glorified body and instantly translate into heaven. Those who have died who are believers, um, whose spirits are with Christ, will have their bodies resurrected, reassembled, glorified, united with their spirit, and then they will be in Christ also with their glorified bodies. Another text which speaks of this in some great detail is 1 Thessalonians four thirteen 13-18, where Paul, speaking to the Thessalonians of what they can expect in the future, says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Here again, believers who have died um, have their bodies resurrected United with their spirits to be with Christ forever, and so that is what awaits believers who die. Unbelievers, they go to Hades or hell suffer agonizing torment until the great white throne judgment when they are cast into the lake of fire, the second death with Satan and his demons. If you want more information about this, you can call the office and ask for the basic Bible doctrine lesson on end times, um, which surveys um, these issues. There's also tapes and CD, or you can ask for the study lesson on the future resurrection, which surveys all the different resurrection texts in the New Testament. And that's all we have time for today. I have another question right here. It's a really good one. (laughs) Next week, let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you so much for all that you give us. We thank you for your word, which grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness and equips us to live a life here on earth that gives you glory. Father, we thank you for just the pleasure and privilege of studying your word, of being able to ask questions and have them answered Father, we thank you that your word is so comprehensive and thorough. And Father, we pray for anyone here who has never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who has never turned their life over to you, and Father, humbled their hearts, trusting only in Jesus' person and work to save them. I pray that if there is anyone here who is lost, who is headed for hell, that right now they would humble their heart, cry out to you for forgiveness, that you would save them, transform them, make them a new creature. And Father, give them the hope of eternal life, that crown of righteousness, which you will give to all those who love your appearing. Father, we thank you for all you give us in Christ's name. Amen.